And Father, I just pray this morning that as we consider what it is that you would have us do from your word, as we consider, Father, what it is that you would have us to be as people, that we might just recognize, Lord, that without our surrender to your plan, it will never be possible. That, Lord, you, you are kind enough to us that you, you don't force your will upon us, Lord, but you allow us to accept your will and your plan and your purpose. God, I just pray that uh, today as we open your word that you might open our hearts to see what it is that you've called us to do and who, you, who it is that you've called us to be. Help us to recognize, Lord, that you haven't given us this great assignment without, without the equipment and the tools that we need to complete it. Help us, Lord, to have a toughness of mind and of heart that we might finish the mission that's been set before us. We just thank you for all it is that you've given to us. We thank you for the comforts that we enjoy today. We pray for our brothers and sisters throughout the world that aren't afforded these same things. And we just ask you to be with them and strengthen them. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. Several years ago, I was working at a, at a resort up in Minnesota. This is when I lived up there. Working for a guy that, and it's a very great, it's a great name. If you're going to own a resort, his name, his first name was Jack his last name was Frost. I can't lie about that. Jack Frost, that was his name. I'll never forget that. Jack was an interesting guy. He had worked and made a lot of money down in the cities and uh, decided to leave the rat race of the busy world. He moved up to northern Minnesota, which a lot of people did. It's a very laid back, wonderful place, kind of place to live. Bought a resort and, uh, and opened it up. And that was about what he knew. And so I did a lot of work out there for him, did log beds and railings and did some repairs on cabins. And I was, I was out doing one of those jobs on the weekend, and, uh, and uh, Jack came up, and he had an unusual request. And it led to a job that I wish that I had got a chance to do a lot more in life. Jack had a, had a fleet of boats that were out on the lake there. It was a beautiful lake, and if you know a little bit about fishing, you know that, that there's zero fish in about 80% or 90% of the water. And in Minnesota, in the lakes, it's even worse. They're giant big bowls of crystal clear water. <laughs> and so uh, if you don't know what you're doing, the fish are going to make you very, very quickly. And so Jack comes up and he's like, um, so, uh, so I've got these people in. And, and uh, he said that they would really like to go fishing today, except that the guide that, that was supposed to be scheduled to come today didn't end up coming. He said, uh, do you think you can be a fishing guide for today? He said, I'll pay you for it and everything like that. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm working in the basement of this nasty little old cabin kind of thing that I'm trying to, to work on right here. Would I rather be doing this or fishing? So I and the answer, I said, sure, Jack, I'll be your fishing guide for the day, you know. So I, uh, I go into the truck and I grab a few things. And you live in Minnesota, you just carry fishing gear with. Um, and so uh, I, I had some fishing gear in the back of my truck. And uh, we went out and uh, I showed up. And as far as these people knew, I was a trained, highly professional fishing guide, right? Now, um, some of you have fished with me before. I, I did do a lot of fishing in those days compared to what I do now. But trained and highly professional, I was not. And uh, so we got out into the lake. But, but I, I, knew, I knew the kind of lake and I knew the kind of lures. These people uh, live somewhere in southern Missouri. And so they're used to using a different set of tools 
to accomplish the purpose they wanted to accomplish. They said, we've been out fishing three days. We haven't caught one fish in these legendary fishing waters of Minnesota. And so, uh, and so we did. We had, a, we had a fun day that day. We took and drug some spinners. First thing we did, kind of drug some spinners by some grass on the side of a bank right there. And they laid into a big northern pike. And if you've ever ever fished up north. Northern pike are just amazing. Um, they're, they're a long fish. You open up their mouth and it's just an entire mouth full of teeth. Hundreds and hundreds of little teeth. You do not want to lip one of these fish. Um, but they fight like crazy. And we got lucky and got a muskie, which is even the more robust version of a, of a northern pike. And then uh, in the afternoon, we went out and the kids wanted to catch something. And so we went out and we got on a little pool of, of sunfish and uh, the kids caught to their heart's content. They had a wonderful time. They come back and told Jack I was the best guide they'd ever fished with. That was the first and last day I ever was a fishing guide. I figured since I made it to that pinnacle, I would just stop right there. Truth is that if you're going to do a job, you've got to have a tool to do the job with. You might be the best fishing guide in the world, but if you don't show up at the lake, no one is going to enjoy your services. You might be the best fisherman in the world, but if you don't have a fishing pole or line or a lure, all of that knowledge is kind of useless. Last Sunday, we talked about being battle ready. That God has called us to not just be a people that kind of roll through this life, but he said, no, I've called you to be prepared for the battle that's ahead. We spent a couple weeks talking about the battle and the nature of the battle and where the battle comes from. And, and if, you, if you weren't here for those, you can grab those on YouTube or I'll give you the notes if you'd like to catch up. This morning, we're going to talk a little bit about our divine outfitter. Because the truth is, is that when we're heading out on this expedition, when we are tackling this mission, we are not tackling it alone. We've been given tools. We've been given expert advice. We have been equipped to carry out the mission that God has given us. The writer of Hebrews mentions this in Hebrews, the 12th chapter, in verses 20 and 21 or so. He says, now may the God of peace who brought you again, or or brought you Uh, Let me start this all over again. Here we go. Now, may the God of peace who brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This is a prayer in in, in many ways. And the writer of Hebrews is praying that God will equip the people who are there and ready to do the job. You really have to have equipment to do almost anything in life. To repair a car engine, you need a certain set of tools. You can know how, but if you've ever been broke down before, and this has happened to me a few years ago, an alternator went out on my pickup truck in the middle of the night. I thought I was good. I didn't bother to bring any tools with me. That's dumb when you drive cars like I do. Um, But I didn't have any tools. I knew how to fix my vehicle, but I was helpless to do it because I didn't have a few wrenches, $20 worth of tools. In order to Replace a broken, broken screen door on the house. You need a different set of tools. In order to play golf or tennis, you need a different kind of gear. In order to hike in the mountains, you need another kind of gear. When you leave on a hunting trip, you always take all the equipment that you're going to need, not only to make the trip, but to bag the game and to feed yourself or to house yourself while you're there. For every adventure in life, there's another set of gear that's required in so many ways that's true of our spiritual life as well. Second Peter, the first chapter, 
In verse 3, Peter writes these words. He says, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and His goodness. Through these, He has given us very great and precious promises so that through them, we may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption of this world that's caused by its evil desires. This is a huge theological text right here. But I want to I just emphasize the first portion of that text. It says, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him who has called us to His own glory. I want you to notice two words in that text. The first one is everything. So often we, we get this idea that, that we don't have what we need to do what it is that God has called us to do. And I think most Christians and most preachers kind of feel like that. I think that's kind of a, a rumor that Satan whispers in our ear. You really aren't equipped for this. You're not really up for the task at hand. I've talked to a lot of preachers over the years, and especially when we the guys that I grew up with, and we're kind of at the same place in ministry in our mid to early 40s, and there's been this transition that's happened. You know, when you're in your 20s and you get out in ministry, your automatically, automatic assumption is that if we just do a bunch of different things, that we'll get a different result, right? That's kind of being a kid, right? We've all been there, 20-year-old. We, we, we know everything and we know nothing all at the same time. It's a glorious period of life. If you're in your 20s, just enjoy it, all right? Because let me tell you, by the time you get into your 30s, and certainly by your 40s, you begin to realize that there's so much that I don't understand and so many things that should work don't work and so many things that shouldn't work do work and you're just like, what in the world is going on here? We think, man, I don't know if I've got what it takes anymore. A few weeks ago, I picked up the phone, called an old friend and, and that was pretty much the nature of his conversation. I just don't know if, if I've got what it takes anymore to do this. And if we think like that, we... We haven't stopped to realize that we're not doing this on our own. If you're struggling with a temptation or a sin right now, guys, that is not your struggle alone. If you're a, chi- if you're a child of God, if you've been washed in the waters of baptism, the Holy Spirit is in your life. So if that doesn't seem to be helping, maybe there's something you're doing that's blocking God working in your life. And that's a possibility. But God, His divine power has given us everything We are able to accomplish anything that God has called us to do because he has given us everything that we need for a godly life through, and I want want you to notice this second word, through our knowledge of him who called us to his own glory. By our knowledge of him who called us. You notice that so much of the Christian life is about knowing and sometimes maybe if, you're, if you've been in Forest Park for years or maybe you're new here, you know that we emphasize a lot the Word of God and the, and the power of the Word of God and the, reason, the, the fact that we need to get into the Word of God and we need to know the Word of God. We need to be a part of our fabric of our life, right? And you probably get tired of hearing Jason say that. Come on, Jason, why are you so ate up with this? Here's why. Because it is that knowledge that helps us to accomplish what it is that God wants us to do in this life through the knowledge. So his divine power has given us, but the, the mechanism is the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory. And then Paul, of course, finishes and reminds us that what he's given us is very great and very precious. And the promises are not just promises that we enjoy in this life, but promises that will carry with us through all of eternity. 
So let's talk a little bit about our divine outfitter. The Apostle Paul described all the equipment that we need when he, when he said in Ephesians 2, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Every single one of us sitting in this room this morning, God has called us to do good things in this world. Good works. Now they're very different because those of us in this room this morning are all very different kinds of people. Some of us are very outgoing and some of us are very, very, very quiet. Some of us are very intellectual and some of us just a, 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 like a simple approach to life. And we appreciate the simple things in life. Some of us are, are young and strong and full of energy. And some of us are older and wiser, but we don't have that passion and drive that we once did. All of us are different people, but we've all been called to do something. What Paul describes here as good works. We're called to be active and doing and changing wherever God has called us in whatever position we find ourselves in life. And what is it that thoroughly equips us to do these good works? The Bible says it's scripture. The scripture does everything that needs to be done to help us live in God's will. It teaches us, for one thing, what is right. It rebukes us. It shows us where we've gone wrong. It corrects us and it brings us back to the right path when we stray and it trains us. Remember, Scripture says that all Scripture is God-breathed and it's useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped. Paul wrote Timothy. Psalms 119 and 105 remind us that this concept just isn't a New Testament concept. This idea that the Word of God is something that is, is important and central to the walk of a believer. In fact, in Psalms 119, it's, it's kind of told us in a, in, a, in, a, in a metaphor in the sense. It says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. We're told that in the olden times that sometimes older, uh, those people in those times would actually attach small little lamps to the sandals of their shoes in order that they might be able to see the uncertain terrain that they were crossing. And some places in, the, in, the, in Israel, that would be a very important thing to do. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. A lamp that goes before us, that lights up step by step where we're to go next. You know, sometimes I think, guys, that Satan tries to get us to see the entirety of the picture, not just what's immediately in front of us. Jesus reminded us of the importance of, of doing something that we often talk about in recovery programs. And, and if you've ever been in an AA-type program or in a, in a recovery program, I'm certain that you've heard this before. They say to live one day at a time, right? We, we, we say that. And, and sometimes we don't remember, we don't recognize that that isn't actually a concept that some recovery guru came up with somewhere, or someone thought up. It is actually a biblical principle brought straight from scripture. Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow is going to have enough trouble of its own. Live one day at a time. Focus on this moment. What is immediately ahead of us? Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. There's a million billion unknowns in the future. We're on the dawn of a brand new decade, right? 2020. Um, it's kind of a crazy thing for some of us who were born in the 1900s um, to think about. But we are on the dawn of a, of a brand new uh, decade. And, and, and who knows what's going to happen in the next year, 10 years. It's really not important. What's important is that we know how to live 
in those next 10 years. When a mathematician wants to find an unknown quantity, he uses factors to do this. And some of you guys are doing this in school, right? In fact, uh, they set up those problems. So if X is unknown, but he does know that X equals 6, or 3 times X equals 6, right? This is simple algebra because it's church, right? You shouldn't have to do tough algebra. Um, Then it's very easy to figure out that X equals 2, right? Even though you don't know what X equals, you do know other things around that. And guys, here's the thing about the Word of God that's so important for us to grasp. The Word of God is the only known factor that we have for sure. It is the known. There's a million X's and Y's and Z's and A's and B's. Life is a picture of uncertainty. And if you've lived any period of time, you know that. There are things in here that will work. They've worked for the last 2,000 years. They've worked for millions of people who have tried them. They are guaranteed to work by our Heavenly Father. The book that we have today, we have received, and if you were here on the last few Sunday nights, we talked about the miraculous way that the Bible has come to us. The brilliant the brilliant consistency of scripture, the fact that it is inerrant, and even from ancient copies until today, there's almost no change in the original text. This book is special. It is the known factor that helps us decipher all the rest of the complications that life throws at us. So we're going to talk a little bit this morning about how to use, how to use this thing. How do we break apart this book that we call the Bible? Psalms 119, 132, 132, the psalmist goes on when he talks about light to my feet and, or to my path, light to my path, excuse me. He says, the unfolding of your word gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and I pant because I long for your commandments. Turn to me and be gracious to me, as is your way with those who love your name. The psalmist makes a statement that sometimes those of us who open up the word of God wouldn't necessarily agree with. The psalmist says that the unfolding of your words give light and it imparts understanding to the simple. Yet sometimes we open up the Bible and even happens to me, oftentimes I open up a text and I'm like, wait a second, what in the world is going on there? What does that mean? I I have the privilege right now of visiting with several people who are kind of on their first path through the scripture. And that's kind of a fun thing for me. I love it. Um, it's like untilled soil right here. These people are kind of reading the Bible and they, they're, 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 get, they're getting things from it. But there's also a million questions. And a lot of you have been there before when you're opening up the Bible and you're like, what does this mean? And how does this fit in? And I heard this person say this. The Bible is written for everyone to understand. Its message is not a complicated message. Let me just say this morning that So much of the scripture is a challenge today because there's so many people that are trying to use the Bible or trying to make the Bible say things for their own purposes. The New Testament talks about this, that people will come and they will twist the truth to fit their own desires. And people try to shape the world around or the Bible around the world rather than changing the world to match the pattern of the Bible. And when that happens, it becomes very complicated and kind of aggravating. Sometimes we're all guilty of this. We know what the Bible says, but we really don't want to do that. And so we try to excuse a, a particular Bible position because I want to do something that's different. But the Bible does give us a great deal of information that bears directly on all the questions that we have in life. 
You might say, well, Jason, the Bible, I looked. The Bible doesn't tell me who I should marry or what occupation I should choose or doesn't tell me where I should take my family on vacation this year. No, but it does tell you, give you guidelines for making all those decisions and many, many more. It works like this. As we learn more of the word, we grow to think as God thinks. We learn to see things from his perspective. Our attitudes, our opinions, our goals, our ideals, and our values slowly begin to become more like his because we understand what his are. When we face major decisions, we begin to evaluate them with the mind of Christ rather than our old mind, the mind of flesh, as the Bible describes it. In many instances, we automatically will know what God wants us to do And doing what God desires will become a daily lifestyle for a lot of us. That's what spiritual maturity kind of looks like. A lot of people think that this spiritual maturity is some kind of thing out there in the ether somewhere. Biblical spiritual maturity is simply knowing the word of God well enough to understand what God's will is for us. And then having the courage and depth of character to begin to live out that will in the face of a challenging and often changing world. So how do we do that? What are the instructions for use? If we're going to develop a mind of Christ and we're going to use the word of God to understand that, if God has said, I've given you everything that you need to know to be able to grow in me through your knowledge of him that I sent to you, then how do we use the Bible? We're going to have a very practical second half of our lesson this morning. We're just going to talk a little bit about how the Bible is constructed and a philosophy of how to use it. I know for some of you here this morning, be like, well, yeah, Jason, I've heard that for a million years. And great. Hopefully that reinforces things that you already know. Maybe there's some of us here today that don't really know these instructions for use. We don't know how to approach the Bible. And and please let let me just tell you this right up front this morning. If this is an area where you realize at the end of the sermon, hey, I, I need to know a little bit more about this. I've got a ton of material in the back that I would be tickled pink to give you and talk to you about, help you get started in this journey. There is nothing more important than you getting a personal relationship with the scripture and you reading through the scripture because it's through that format that God challenges us and motivates us. He deals with our own personal challenges. So it's important for you guys to do that individually. I'm here and would love to. I know that all the guys would like to the same help you do that. Uh, Women's Bible studies on Tuesday morning, a lot of what they're doing is just getting into the Word and studying it and learning together how best to do that. And so that's one of the big things that we're about here at Forest Park. If you have more questions, let us know. So let's talk about the instructions for use. And if you have your bulletin insert today, it'll be a good bit to write down. But there's four basic means by which God reveals His will to us through the Word. And we don't have to guess what God wants for us to do. Sometimes people are like, I don't know what God wants me to do. God isn't going to give you specifics sometimes, but he's certainly going to give you the principles that you need to make the most godly decision. And so these four things are pretty, actually pretty simple. And yet sometimes I find that a lot of people don't do carry on these things. So number one, the first thing is there are plain statements or first kind of statements in the Bible. There's plain statements of his will, statements in which God will... Tell us exactly what he wants. Things like, thou shalt not kill. 
thou shalt not commit adultery. In the New Testament, Jesus would take those plain Ten Commandments, if you will, and he would bring those back into uh, the New Testament. You have heard it said, thou shalt not kill. If you hate your brother, you're already guilty of murder. You have heard it said, do not commit adultery. I say, if you look in lust with lust at a woman, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. He's added some, some meat to that. He's put some teeth on that. But the first kinds of commandments or instructions in the Bible that help us understand God's will are simply as plain statements. Like, go into all the world, the Great Commission. Make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's not hard to understand that. It's a very direct commandment. It's a, it's a driving motivator. Peter asked, what shall we do to be saved? Repent and be baptized, every one of you. The Bible's full of those statements, right? And so that's the first and most obvious kind of commandments. The plain, just right out there in front, statement of God's will. Secondly, there's positive and negative commandments which God tells us what he expects of us. And so these can take on a lot of different varieties. A few weeks ago, we talked about 10 girls who five were prepared and five who weren't, right? And Jesus obviously is calling us to be the kind of people that are prepared, that show up with extra oil, that when we start this thing that we call the Christian life, we intend to finish it, no matter what the delay and no matter what the cause for concern. There's positive and negative commandments, things that are just obvious, the Ten Commandments fall into these in another way as well. The thou shouts in the scripture, if you will, all right, or you shoulds of scripture. Third, there are general principles that are relevant to our decisions. A lot of times we get into uh, the latter parts of, 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 the, of the New Testament, into the epistles. For instance, in an area of church discipline. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians talks about dealing with a guy that's caught in a really bad sin. He has somehow taken his father's wife as his own, right? And Paul talks about this and he says, look, you need to deal with this sin. You need to put him out of the assembly. You need to set him aside. You need to hand him over to Satan. He uses that language because he said, if he doesn't, this is going to kill him spiritually. And then again, in 2 Corinthians, this guy has come to repentance and he's knocking at the door of the church saying, hey, let me back in. I, I've done away with this. And they're like, no, we put you out. You're always out. And so Paul has to come back and he says, no, 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 look, when he's repentant, let him back in unless he just becomes weary and Satan drags him back down again. Those are not stories that probably relate to anything that happens in a church today in America. More than likely. I'm sure it's happened somewhere. But probably most people are going to live their entire life and never hear of that specific sin or that specific situation. But it's a general principle. We understand this is what we're to do if somebody is caught in a sin and refuses to repent of that sin. Even though the church goes to them and they talk to them about it and they're still holding on to this obvious sinful thing in their life. This is a general principle that helps us to understand what God would have us to do and maybe what would look like a very different situation. And finally, there's biblical impressions made on our, on our mind as we read the Word of God. And these can be wide-ranging sorts of things, but, but it kind of gives us some understanding of, of who God wants us to be. When you read through the text of Scripture, for instance, another story in the life of Jesus, Jesus has brought a woman who's caught in the act of adultery. This is a story that we all know very well. It's often preached, used in a lot of sermons. 
and, and this woman's brought, and they bring him before Jesus. It's a perfect trap because they're, they're trying to set Jesus up. He's either going to break the law of the Old Testament, and so they can say that he's not a prophet, or they think he's going to break the law of the Roman government and say that they can be stoned, right? You remember that? And Jesus, of course, brilliantly walks around both of the traps and says, you have the first sin, or no, no sin, you cast the first stone. goes right back to the actual text of the Old Testament and quotes it back to them. And then they all leave, of course. And then there's this, this moment where Jesus looks up and he says to the woman, and, and John does a very specific job of laying this out, and he says, where have all of your accusers gone? And she said, there's none left. And he says to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now, obviously, that's not a direct commandment to us today, and it has nothing to do with anyone that's alive today, but it certainly helps us to understand the kind of attitude that Jesus approached ministry with. <coughs> Excuse me. And so these three or these four principles are, are the kinds of statements that we find in the Bible. There's plain statements of God's will. There's no question about them. They're commandments. They're in black and white. We carry on those. There's positive and negative commandments. Things that we're told to do or things that we're told to avoid have nothing to do with this kind of person. Let none of these words come out of your mouth. Do these things and you will live. Those are the kinds of commandments in the second branch. Third, there's general principles that are relevant to our decisions. And fourthly, there's biblical impressions that are made in our mind as we read through the text. We step back and we say, I think, I think this helps me to understand how I'm to deal with maybe a very different but related type circumstance in my life. And let's be honest, there's a right and a wrong way to approach the Bible. Let me just take a moment here quickly this morning and talk about this. Because some people have an idea. In fact, I ran across somebody just recently, and I put this in my sermon for this specific thing. Because we, we ran across somebody, and uh, he was, we were trying to have kind of a discussion about a couple things that he had said. And this gentleman said, just open up the Bible anywhere and just point out a verse. Well, open up a Bible and pointed out a verse, and it had nothing to do with nothing. I don't remember what the verse was right now, but I think the, Lord, the hand of the Lord was with us because you couldn't find a more purposeless verse by itself in the entirety of the Bible. I wish I could remember. I'm hoping other people there can remember what it was, but it was unrelated to nothing. It was about a guy that no one even knows anything about in the Old Testament. And then this guy attempts to try to make some point about that verse. Look, this isn't just a book of magic. You know, it's not like some kind of a book, like a, like a fancy magic deck of playing cards and you flip to it and point your finger and God will give you the answers to things. You know, God says, this is going to be some work. You need to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You need to struggle with stuff. You know what? If God had wanted to, God could have downloaded with us upon birth the entire blueprint for our life. A little printout, you know, that comes floating down from heaven. Jason should marry Michelle, and they should get married at 22 years old. They should have two children. They should name the first Kelsey and the second Michaela. God could do those kinds of things if he wanted to. He knows those kinds of things. And on occasion, God did that when it fit his purpose. Think of Jesus, right? Mary shows up and God said, hey, by the way, you're about to have a kid. God sent an angel to do this, but it was from God. And you're going to call him a specific thing. And that was how it had to be. But God doesn't do that in most cases. He said, no, I would rather give you the principles and I want you to struggle with that. I want you to internalize those principles and those commandments and those statements and those inferences. I want you to put that in your mind and I want you to struggle with this, Jason. I want you to think about what you're doing. 
Because I've created you to be more than a mind-numbed robot that goes through the world and just does things that we're programmed to do. I've created you in my image, which means you're a being that has the ability to think and to wrestle and to reason and to determine. And I want you to do that. That's who you're created to be. Sometimes we get lazy and we just want to approach the Bible. We want the Bible just to kind of fall out and to reveal all of its truths. There's something about the life of Jesus that's interesting. On occasion, Jesus could have answered a question with a very simple answer. But on many occasions in Scripture, Jesus would choose rather to tell a story that somewhat cloaked the actual message And he did that because I believe, at least, because he wanted people to think about it. He didn't want them just to get the regurgitated Sunday school answer. So I want you to think about that. You know the answer to that. I'll tell you a story. Who is my neighbor? You guys remember that, right? One of the ones that always pops out of my mind. Jesus said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then this kind of pompous and self-righteous sort of guy, in my mind, he might have been a very sincere guy. I don't know. But this this guy stands up and says, "Um, who is my neighbor? Now, Jesus could have just said, everyone around you, right? But chooses rather to tell a story about a man who was going from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among thieves and he was beaten and thrown in the ditch and he was bleeding and he was dying there in the ditch and a priest and a Levite passed and they passed by on the other side and then a Samaritan came and the Samaritan took him out of the ditch and he put him on his donkey and he bound up his wounds and he poured oil and he took him to an inn and he took care of him in the inn and then the next day he gave the innkeeper money and said, hey, if there's any more expenses, I'll pay it my next way through again. And then Jesus says, who's my neighbor? And the guy said, they couldn't even say Samaritan. I love that part. The one to whom he show, or was showed mercy. And Jesus said, that's right. You go do the same thing. Um, Jesus could have very easily right there just given them a quick answer. But he wanted them to struggle. If you ever jump into the word of God and you think, boy, this is kind of tough. Recognize that God has not made it tough to hide the truth. He's made it tough because he wants us to wrestle in our hearts with the truth. If Jesus had just said to that guy, well, Samaritan is, a, is, is your neighbor, the guy would have been like, he's a, he's, a, he's a moron, there's nothing to it. But when Jesus tells the story and he forces that man to practice what he knew to be godly principles against this story, he was forced without option to give the answer that God, Jesus rather, and the man knew was right. So we need to familiarize ourselves, not with just part of the Bible, but with the entirety of Scripture. And we're going to give five things quickly as we close today that we can do that. And I promise quickly. So uh, pop your pens open and here we go. These are the five rules that I think are very, very important for us to apply while we're reading Scripture. Um, And I think if we practice these five things, and they're not very complicated, and you're going to look back and say, well, those aren't hard, Jason. Well, no, but if we practice these five things, most of the misinterpretations of the Bible no longer an issue. There are some parts of Scripture that are hard for all of us to understand. When you get into the prophetic accounts especially, it's naturally designed and delivered to be somewhat cloaked in its actual meaning. But the majority of the Bible, that's only really the book, the latter part of the book of Daniel and some in the Minor Prophets and in the book of Revelation. The rest of the Bible is, is intended to be very easily grasped. And I think if we do these five things, it will help us to, to do that and to get the correct meaning. Number one, we need to understand when we're reading through a text of Scripture and say we come across something, we're like, what does this mean? The first thing we want to do is seek to understand the words in their normal sense. Sometimes people 
like to try to take what the Bible says just very plainly in black and white, and they try to spiritualize it or make a, make a metaphor out of it or try to somehow other apply it. It is my personal conviction. You feel free to argue if you would like. We can talk about this later. But I believe that the vast majority of Scripture is written just very plainly to reveal exactly what it says. Now, sometimes there are alternative things. Sometimes God, being far greater than we are, is able to have an obvious meaning and maybe a spiritual meaning in the future, and we could look at those. We don't have time to do that right this morning. But the vast majority of the scriptures that you read, and even the vast majority of the scriptures that you run across, and you're like, what is that saying? Pause first and just try to understand the words as they're written. What does this say? Secondly, Apply the accepted rules of grammar to what you read. One of the tests, incidentally, if you guys should know this, one of the tests for figuring out authentic versus non-authentic texts from the ancient world is a grammar text. Linguistics experts will look at the text of it and ask, how well is it written? Because here's something we know about the Bible. The Bible is extremely well written. The grammar that's used in the Bible isn't poor grammar. Even though it was fishermen and rather common people that wrote a great deal of it, it was well written. Now, we don't speak Hebrew today, and we don't speak, uh, we don't speak Greek, so we're not reading it in the original languages. But great scholars who are very wisely trained have taken those texts and very diligently translated them into a modern language that is grammatically correct. And I find that sometimes people just... They try to make certain passages say things that they grammatically can't say. You know, in the rules of grammar, like who is the person that's being talked about right there? And to apply those things back to the person being talked about. So I would like to talk a lot more about that, but I can't. All right. Number three, understand what you read in the context in which it appears. So look around that text. Don't just pull a verse out. And this happens a lot. You'll hear people do this. They'll pull out a verse and say, this is what God says. That's in the Old Testament. That's Isaiah talking to people that aren't even around today. Or that's a passage in Psalms that might have some meaning for me. Or that's Jesus talking to his disciples. It's not Jesus talking to me. So we need to be careful to understand what we read in the context in which it's written. Number four, it's important for us to become familiar with the cultural and historical background of the original readers. Now each of these are in lesser of importance as we go down this list. You should know that. But it really helps us to have a general understanding of the ancient world when we're reading the Bible. There's certain things that just make a lot more sense, and I don't have time this morning to go into those, but there's certain stories in the Scripture that when we understand a little bit about how the ancient world worked, it, it kind of challenges us to, to see a little bit more in it. Charles was talking about one of these a couple weeks ago in his Sunday morning class lesson. Um, that's cool. Um, where he was talking about... Uh, he was talking about uh, the woman who had an issue of blood. You might remember that story in the, in the ministry of Jesus. Jesus is, uh, is in a crowded area. The woman reaches out and touches the hem of his garment. And Jesus turns around and said, who touched me? And she's afraid. You might be like, well, why is she afraid? And, you know, it's Jesus. And, well, she's afraid because she, number one, was a woman and wasn't allowed just to go up and touch a man. That's a cultural thing. Secondly, the Old Testament says that when you're in that period of life, you're not allowed to be around other people. You're unclean. And so this woman had broken several customs. And if you didn't know those things, you would, 
you wouldn't gather everything that there is to learn about that story. And, and that's part of the things that come from just studying the Word through an extended period of time. And being around other people who are studying the Word, you can gain some of that insight. Number five, recognize to whom the passage was written. Who is it written to anyway? Maybe it's written for other people. And while we gain benefit from everything that's in the Bible, um, it may not be written to us. There's a lot of things in the Old Testament, for instance, that were written for those who were under the Old Covenant that not, aren't ours. Now, they tell us something about God, and they tell us something about how God wants us to look at the world, but they're not necessarily things that we're bound by. So recognize to whom the passage was, or the, the, uh, passage was written. These five things, seek to understand the words in the normal sense. What does it really say? Just in plain English, because 99% of the time, that's exactly what God meant when he wrote that, in my opinion. Understand and apply the accepted rules of grammar to what you've read. Understand what you read in the context uh, in which it will appear. Become familiar with the cultural and historical background. And number five, be sure to recognize to whom that passage was written. When you have that kind of understanding of the scripture, you make yourself more ready for the attack that's going to come. I don't have to tell you that when Jesus was early on in his ministry, Jesus was called, it says, by the spirit out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Spent 40 days out there, the entire story as we get it from the gospels consolidated 40 days without eating, fasting, praying, preparing for the mission that was ahead. Jesus knew it was serious. The entirety of of the, the human race rested upon his shoulders. And at the end of those 40 days, guess who decides to show up? The one that always shows up in those moments. The one who loves to destroy, loves to break, and would want nothing more than to trip up Jesus in a moment of weakness. Jesus knew who he was. He who knew who Jesus was. But he began anyway. Listen, guys, if Satan is brave enough, brazen enough, and crazy enough to try to tempt Jesus, he will come at you and me. There's no question. He waited till that moment of absolute vulnerability, that moment where Jesus was probably the physically weakest of any moment in his life, and then he shows up with one of the most seductive temptations. He said, look around you, all those rocks that kind of look like loaves of bread, fresh bread right out of the oven. Can you smell it? Look at it, butter dripping off the edges, white, flaky. A lot of you guys are like, shut up, Jason. You're already over time, and I'm hungry. (laughs) That's how Satan works. He plies on our heart, and he gets us in there. He's like, you know you want that. Yeah, I do, I do, I want it, right? What did Jesus say to Satan? Hey, Satan, you can't play with me. Satan, I'm tougher. (laughs) You think you're going to come out here and tempt me? Whoa, no. If you know the story, you know that's not all the swagger. Jesus quotes scripture back to Satan. Man shall not live by bread alone. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You shall worship no one else but God. He responded with scripture. Listen, folks, if that is how Satan or Jesus is going to respond to Satan when he tempts, we had better sit up and take notice. We live in an age of of, of biblical illiteracy, and I think it is nothing more than Satan orchestrating an ability to have his way with the church. If you don't know the word of God, you don't have the most important tool you need. When the apostle Paul was talking about the armor of God, he talked about all kinds of accoutrements, all of them very important. And he says, and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, your only offensive weapon happens to be a book full of words. 
lot of people have them, they keep them closed on their shelf. God said you need to keep that open and be using it. How many of you have ever gone down the bayou before? And we're going to close with this, guys. Have you ever been down the bayou and you've seen a great blue heron? You guys ever seen that? They're, they're wading birds. They generally stand in the sides of the, of the, of the waterways. We used to chase them canoeing up in Minnesota. You chase them down the bayou here. I like them. When you see a great blue heron, you know you're kind of out there in nature. The great blue heron has an interesting kind of beak. They're, they're, they're darting kind of fisher, fish, or fisher birds. They, they, they get fish out of the water. Um, they have a very long, straight beak. And when they have young, they have an interesting way of guarding their young. See, the Bible tells us that, that we are to do everything that we can and then to stand firm. We talked about this last week. At the end of the preparations of, of the armor of God, it says, and stand firm. We're not running out picking fights with people over the word of God. That's not what we're doing with the Bible. We're not beating people over the head with the word of God. Or God, It is too great of a book for that. Jesus said, don't cast your pearls before swine. But here's what we do with the word of God. We do what the word of God, a lot what the great blue heron does with his beak. Because if there's a predator that tries to attack the young on the nest, the great blue heron stands its ground. But because of its very quick reflexes, the great, great blue heron aims that sharp bill of his at whatever predator it is that's incoming. So you can imagine a hawk. You ever seen a hawk drop in on a chicken? I see that a lot at my house right now. It makes me angry. Um, but uh, but it, it drops in. That bird has, has, has set his, his glide course. That last little bit, there's not a whole lot of maneuverability right there. He can pull out his wings, but he's still coming in. That great blue heron just sits there with that bill, that bill poking straight out truth of the matter is that most of the time when birds are injured by running into heron it's because they hit his bill or her bill they just stand their ground that's what this book does i want you to notice something about the temptation of jesus jesus did not go hunting for satan satan came hunting for him but when satan showed up jesus didn't try to Fake his way through it. You're not going to fake your way through a temptation with Satan, brothers and sisters. He will clip you every time. Jesus stood firm with the word of God, put it out right in front of him. Satan, you want to come at me? You're going to have to come through this. You want to tempt me to turn stones to bread? There's a passage for that. You want to tempt me to jump off the temple? There's a passage for that. You want to tempt me to bow down and worship you? There's a passage for that. If you want to come at me, come at me. Give it everything you've got. But he has given me everything I need stand brothers and sisters i know i talk about this a lot i know some of you have probably said jason another lesson about the bible being important yes because guys we've got to be in this book some of us are struggling sometimes that's because we're just not in the word when that temptation comes we don't push it back and once a temptation gets in our life then we've got problems right once we begin to to live in that then there's all kinds of other issues the best way to deal with that is right at the beginning and that's what the word of god gives us strength if you need help getting through this if you want to get started reading through the word of god this year i've got a bible reading plan you can catch up quick quick if uh, if you would like to have some help in knowing what certain passages mean our doors are always open it is never too early or too late or we're never too busy to sit down and talk with you about something in this book because this will change your life. And I know you know that. Thank you guys for letting me tell you that and remind you of what you already know this morning. Let's stand together. If you have a need this morning, 
you know you're always welcome to come. You need to give your life to the Lord. The waters of baptism can be ready in moments. Let's make that decision today.